creator and host of the Left Pocket Project, which seeks to bring you the history of leftists of color one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Before I get started on today's episode, our first of 2019, I'm very happy to say, I just wanted to ask you all to please forgive any background noise as I'm currently recording in a house full of children and in-laws in Turkey. So again, my apologies for the extra background noise. Um, I also really wanted to say a huge thank you to all of the listeners who stuck it out during the hiatus. Um, I was gone for the past six months doing research, um, so I really appreciate those of you who were able to continue sharing content from the project, um, episodes from the podcast, and also for those of you who continued to donate. That's a huge deal, and I really appreciate those of you who've been able to show your continued support through these means. Um, I also wanted to give a quick reminder for anyone who's a new listener that you can find out more about the Left Pocket Project, including um, posts about leftists of color throughout history, by visiting us on Twitter, and that's at LeftPOC, on Facebook, also at LeftPOC, and of course, tuning into the previous episodes of the podcast by visiting SoundCloud, Spreaker, or iTunes, and of course, searching for LeftPOC. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a rating or review in iTunes. This helps the podcast show up in suggestions for new listeners who might be interested in the discussions that we have here on the show, as well as the interviews that we conduct. Also, if you'd like to show additional support for the podcast, please be sure to share with a friend, family member, and a colleague, and become a dollar donor or a $5 comrade on Patreon by visiting us at patreon.com slash Something that's really important about this project is that all of our content is always free, literally always, and never behind a paywall. Um, So that means anything that we send out, articles, podcast episodes, discussions, anything that we do is free for you all to access at all times. However, donating to Patreon allows us to continue to keep things running behind the scenes, including payment to our amazing assistants, the small honorarium that we give our, um, an organizational donation that we give our guests, and also web storage, coffee, things like that. So we really appreciate any amount of money that you can help us with. Um, And again, you can go to patreon.com slash leftpoc to do that. Okay, so now that all the housekeeping is out of the way, let's get on to the show. In today's episode, Richard and I will be discussing Paulo Freire's 1968 work, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, as part of our Reading Revolution series. While many cite Freire's work and are familiar with many of his ideas, fewer have actually had a chance to read it in full. So Richard and I thought it would be a great idea for us to open up 2019, particularly considering its continued significance decades after its publication, with the discussion of Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Uh, a little bit more about Freire, just to give you guys a, an understanding of his background and where he was coming from in terms of his work. He was born in 1921 in Recife, Pernambuco, a state in the northeast of Brazil, uh, to a middle-class family that fell on hard times during the 1920s, particularly in 1929, a little bit after that time, um, after the U.S. stock market crash had actually reverberated around the world. 
His personal experiences of poverty around this time, and particularly the intense hunger and desperation of his neighbors and his community, um, the things that he saw them all suffer, were early seeds to the alternative methods that he sought in order to help the poor. Freddy taught children while still in high school and then later went on to study law in college where he met his wife Elsa, who was also a teacher. Elsa encouraged Freddy to take a closer look at education and is thought to have inspired many of his methods that he went on to later apply in the community. Freddy became closely involved with education at an administrative level, uh, but became frustrated with what he saw as a furthering of elitist practices in the field. He began to work with the movement of popular culture, and in the 1950s and early 60s began to put his theory of critical consciousness making, also known as conscientiousness, into action. This action became explicitly political, particularly his literacy programs for which he would later become famous. Um, As in Brazil at the time, you had to be literate in order to have the right to vote. So you can imagine, you know, teaching poor people how to read and then connecting that to politics was a particularly an explicitly political act. Uh, Ferry began teaching poor farmers and local workers through the highly interactive, dialogue-based critical consciousness method, but local officials saw his work as a threat. In the earliest years of Brazil's military dictatorship, which lasted from 1964 to 1985, Freire was labeled a traitor and imprisoned for over two months. Once released, he moved to Bolivia and then Chile, where he lived in exile for five years and wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed. During the 1970s, he then lived in Geneva, Switzerland, and later worked closely with the newly independent government of Guinea-Bissau, once a Portuguese colony, on education programs. Freire returned to Brazil in the 1980s, during which he also became an active member of the newly formed Workers' Party. Following the dictatorship, he went on to become the Minister of Education in the city of Sao Paulo and remained active teaching alternative methods of education within and beyond Brazil until his death in 1997. So I am joined today by my co-host, Richard. Thanks so much for being here, Richard. Thank you for having me. And uh, today we're actually going to talk about the long-awaited Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo Freire. Uh, we've been hinting at this for a very long time, and I feel like in on Twitter and in the last uh, discussion that we had right before the end of the year and the beginning of 2019, uh, you kept bringing in so many amazing quotes and ideas from Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And I was like, no, wait, like, you know, um, so now, now we're in it. We're in the thick of it. We actually sat down. We read it. We highlighted for you guys. We took some notes, and we're going to explain and discuss one of the books that's like pretty quintessential on the left, um, and I think something that a lot of people have heard reference, but maybe haven't had the time or the energy to actually sit down and read and think about. And what's fascinating too is that when you read this book, or when you just listen to us discuss it, you'll notice that so many things come from this book that you hear in like your everyday interactions with people, especially people who are trying to think about liberatory politics. Um, And you're like, oh shit, that's from Pedagogy of the Press and I didn't even know. And so I think that's kind of exciting and one of the things that makes the book really important, even even though it was written a long time ago, it's important for us to look back and think about now. Mm, Absolutely. Uh, I know that I have a bit of uh, a frustration. One of the things that I've discovered in since started doing this uh, podcast and reading more revolutionary materials is a frustration that I wasn't exposed to more of this at a at a younger age. 
mm. you know, in an, in an, edu- in an educational uh, facility or, you know, capacity uh, and that it wasn't presented as an alternative, you know, way of organizing my thinking. That, that was one of the biggest things that uh, really uh, echoed with me and, and stuck with me from this. And it's a frustration that I see today and i'll keep it brief but just in today's politics right now we we see a a shutdown and the humanitarian cost both at the border and then of the of the employees that are having their lives disrupted and i can't help but think if more of them had been exposed to this type of uh thinking or the, the the texts and the and the kind of models that are expressed within the text that they would be better equipped to uh, resist and fight the forces that are uh, basically in control of their lives in such a way that they're they're forcing them to make all sorts of dramatic economic decisions as a result of basically a tantrum uh, at the federal government level. Right, and not only that, but like using this the exploitation that they're metting out upon government workers to then also mobilize government workers against immigrants. It's like this really strange kind of mm-hmm. overlap where you're taking someone who's being, who's being marginalized or put in a position where they're economic, they're have they're dealing with economic precarity right now. And like at the worst possible time, like right after the holiday and you're paying all this, you probably are in debt anyway. And then all of a sudden to say, you're not getting your paycheck you know, you may have sick children, sick family members, you may be sick yourself, so many things and so many bills that you have to pay and stuff. Um, and then only to be told that you don't get any money because we need to build a wall first. And so I think the, giving that sort of ultimatum is just pitting people against one another. And in ways that, you know, people like Freire sort of try to address in in work like Pedagogy of the Oppressed and warn us of um, and kind of think about the ways that it's always important to express solidarity and to not lose sight of that. And that part of that, and I should say a big part of that, comes from listening and talking to one another and understanding other people's sides and where they're coming from and not just saying, this is my way or the highway, like, I know what's best for you. Um, but instead, understanding where someone is coming from, what position they're in, um, and how we can work together to to not to not oppress one another, but again, like I said, to work together to fight the oppressor um, and to bring about change in that way. So yeah. it's very yeah, well timed. I, I, I think that lies somewhere in between, you know, inviting Nazis to speak at your college and you know shouting people down on Twitter because they accidentally, you know. Uh, misphrase something about something they read <laughs> mm. somewhere in between those two is uh, you know, like or like or beyond or like beyond not including those two is i think yeah. where we get <laughs> get where we get the the kind of engagement that we're talking about where you know you're having a, a discussion a dialogue where both parties are there to better understand the phenomena that you're discussing not mm-hmm. not to score points not to win the argument not to prove that you're right and that the other person's wrong but to both of you to get a better understanding of uh your guys or, or of your perceptions of, of the situation and i think that that's really what Freire's talking about and one thing that you said earlier although it was sort of a freudian slip but you almost called your school an educational facility which to me <laughs> makes it sound like it's a prison or something right um and so i think that's kind of a perfect segue for us to talk about what what Freire himself means when he says pedagogy of the oppressed and also how that 
kind of pedagogy can be enacted and what sort of methods can be used in educating and in the process of learning as well that are liber that are that give us liberation and that are point to paths of liberation as opposed to just regurgitating the same facts we keep learning over and over and not questioning them, not engaging what they actually mean um, and how they can apply to our everyday lives. And so whether just, they're facts at all. <laughs> right. Yes, that too. Right. Um, definitely. And so I think I just want to, we're going to actually go in order because one of the things that Richard and I were talking about earlier is how we're using the 30th anniversary of Pedagogy of the Oppressed and or 30, 30th anniversary version and it's so funny because there are like 20 intros to the book. <laughs> so <laughs> there's like a preface and then a forward and then acknowledgments and then an introduction, like an introduction to the introduction and then the original introduction. So there are a lot of layers to peel back, but we think that they're individually really worth reading. Like I know sometimes people just skip over that stuff and go straight to the original text. But in this case, the introduction of pedagogy, the introduction, at least introductions, plural, <laughs> of this version are actually really, really good. And so we're going to start in order and talk about some of those um, first. So the first one that we encounter, if I'm not mistaken, let me just double check because I don't want to skip one of the intros. Okay, so we do have, <laughs> we have a publisher's forward, which I think, I don't know, do you want, do you want to talk about that? Or can we skip that one? I what think we can. It, it's short. If, if you're interested, I think you can read it. It's like one page, I think. It's like a page or two. Um, so let's skip that one. <laughs> mm -hmm. But the intro, the original, like the, the first introduction, which is around page 11, 12. Um, this is by a professor by the name of Donaldo Macedo, who is of Portuguese descent and from Cape Verde um, and was teaching at the time in Boston, like grew up in Boston around that area and was teaching there. So yeah, let's go around, let's go a little bit over this first and like first impressions and thoughts and kind of what he lays out in the introduction. And then we can get a little bit deeper into the other introduction than Freire's actual introduction. Um, so first of all, I mean, I just think it's interesting that he, as a person who grew up, he says he considers him, Donaldo considers himself a colonized young man from Cape Verde who had been struggling with significant questions of cultural identity, yearning to break away from the yoke of Portuguese colonialism. And he goes on further to say that reading Pedagogy of the Oppressed gave him the language to critically understand the tensions, contradictions, fears, doubts, hopes, and quote unquote deferred dreams that are a part that are part and parcel of living a borrowed and colonized cultural existence. Reading this book also gave him the inner strength to begin the arduous process of transcending a colonial existence that is almost culturally schizophrenic, being present and yet not visible, being visible and not yet present, which I thought was like, I was like, damn, son, it's mm -hmm. so good. I mean, I just think he does it. It's just one paragraph or like a couple of sentences, but I think the words he uses here are really powerful because I don't think it just applies to people who are like coming out from from under colonial power. I think it could apply to a lot of us just like living under capitalism and thinking about the ways that our lives don't feel like our lives. They feel like some like we're on borrowed time, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I, I read colonized as not just in the like the literal term of, you know, mm -hmm. of actually being, but the colonized mind, you know, in that, Absolutely. And, and how colonization, uh, you know, dominates the uh, dominates people's minds and sets in their minds certain truths and facts that are socially constructed, not 
uh, you know, logically and scientifically constructed. Mm-hmm. What else is like something that stood out maybe that you wanted, a, there's a passage or section that you thought was really meaningful in his introduction, Richard? Um, one of the first things that stuck out to me, and, and I don't think it actually uh, necessarily came first, but I think it's uh, worth uh, us in, like thinking about as we get into the text, is mm-hmm. that he mentions that in most totalitarian states, people risked cruel punishment, including imprisonment, if they were caught just reading the texts that we're, we're investigating here. So mm-hmm. uh, some of us, it's a, it, it's a moment for me, I guess, to re- recognize some of the privilege that I have, being able to very easily access this information and, and consume it with minimal fear of any sort of uh, repercussions or you know, criminalization of me just consuming it. When I start reproducing it and spreading it, uh, I get a bit more concerned in the United States, but I, <laughs> I, 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 just the consumption of it, I, I feel rather, uh, you know, secure in, and that that's a luxury that many of the people that have, you know, interpreted and taken in this text and used it to help lead towards their liberation didn't enjoy. And so uh, that's just something I keep on my mind uh, when I was reading this text. And though I'm frustrated and angry that it was, I wasn't exposed to it sooner, I appreciate that. I have the opportunity to read it now. And that's one of the things too, that like one of the later introductions talks about, but the fact that like, it's weird that in the U S we often are not exposed to it. And there are people who will go through their entire, like an entire PhD program on education and not ever read Freire in the U S which is like nuts. Um, but also that particular section that you're talking about is really, it's fun to read because you're like, wow, if we were reading this in real time, it would be so much, even it's exciting now, but it would be like even more exciting then because Macedo, for example, talks about people who would make photocopies and like manual copies of the text and then Mm -hmm. like rewrite the text and spread it to other people kind of clandestinely spread it to their friends and that they would all wait, like people would wait to get a copy of it to read or like the next page to read. Like it's so, it's just like amazing to think about how this text is so powerful that people were taking such a risk, but also just the fact that like there was so much work going into reproducing the work um, and I, they're reproducing the text. And I think that that too kind of just shows its weight and like how how the text itself was transformed into a kind of tool of liberation for people who were fighting, um, you know, colonialism and other forms of oppression wherever they were. But it's so sad. I think also like what you raised about how we have a privilege now to read it in the U.S. more or less in, uninterrupted. Um, but at the same time, like ironically in Brazil, which is currently under, you know, the governance of Jair Bolsonaro, who himself is a fascist and who loves the military dictatorship and all these things. Um, And Freire, as I mentioned earlier in the intro, was one person who was antagonized pretty heavily during the dictatorship and who had to live in exile. What's crazy right now is that his text at the moment and his just the legacy of Freire in Brazil is under fire again. It's under intense scrutiny by a right-wing government who basically says that people like Freire too deeply influenced the Brazilian education system, which I'm (laughs) laughing about because it's like the education system in Brazil, particularly public schools, but also private schools where like all they do is just learn uh, to prepare for like the Brazilian equivalent of the SAT, like college entrance exams. Everything is based around how well you test. And so it's very much in violation and complete contradiction of what Freire stood for, which we'll get into in a minute. But like, 
it's kind of amazing that it just feels like we've gone full circle and we're at a point now where if you're reading Freire in Brazil, you're putting yourself at risk and you're being labeled, um, you know, a, a communist or some sort of threat to the Republic when you're just reading the text of a man who, who believed in more free and equal education and, and ways of talking to people and ways of existing. You know, it's kind of just, it's, I don't know, it's surreal a bit to me. Yeah, it it really is. And like you said, the descriptions of like people waiting for pages and and you know the excitement and the the danger and it, it makes it it you know it makes me feel irresponsible for not having done more uh, of in that I can do to help spread it out and to help uh, you know reproduce this information in a way that makes it consumable for even more people. So uh i guess uh, we can uh, that that's one of the th one of the big pieces that kind of stuck out for me that i think uh is going to be a theme throughout the piece that mm -hmm. uh, i just wanted to talk about specifically but we can get back into our order thing i think okay <laughs> but like hold, hold that like hold that thought remember that thought we should mm -hmm. definitely get back to it um but i think like what you mentioned here is I think it's fascinating that you have this slight sense of guilt because like, that's what we're doing right now. So if you think about anyone who's listening to this, who hasn't had a chance to read this book is listening in order to learn more about it. Right. So in many ways you are, you are that guy making the photocopy, you know, like you are the person who's, yeah, but you are the person who's like spreading the message. And I think in a way that makes it more easy to understand um, than if you were reading it necessarily in a classroom setting where there might be a time crunch or, you know, like a, you're mm -hmm. going to be tested on it or be pressured to discuss it in a certain way or be, you know, I think in this, in this particular format, you are engaging in a practice of spreading that message and communicating that message to, to other people. Um, but also I think that it's fascinating that even Freire himself, which is something else that's covered in the intro, he himself like wasn't born poor, right? He was born middle-class and then the country underwent uh, an economic crisis like shortly after the, um, the economic crisis in the United States in 1929. So at this time you kind of see the area where he grew up, which is in Brazil's Northeast, goes through a major drought, goes through economic intense economic crisis. And so he sees even his own family have to deal with hunger and he witnesses hunger that's even more dire than anything he's ever seen in his life and he notes that like the 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 intro, the person writing the intro Macedo notes that it's not just something that's an intellectual exercise he says but it's something that instead of being an intellectual exercise quote that we often find among many facile liberals and pseudo critical educators instead his intellectual brilliance and courage in denouncing the structures of oppression were rooted in a very real and material experience so like Freire knows what he's talking about because he himself has seen hunger he's not just pontificating on it as some sort of abstract idea right and i think mm -hmm. that's what makes the work even more powerful because for him he knows what feeling oppressed um, on the basis of like economic status, for example, can he knows what it looks like. He knows what material deprivation looks like and feels like. Mm. Yeah, and he he describes the the how hunger the the type of hunger he's describing is not just you know like the kind of hunger you get when you had a long day at work and skipped lunch. It's mm -hmm. it's the type of hunger that's deep and un, he says unannounced and unauthorized, making itself at home without an end in sight and says you know uh, that it would take over their bodies and turn them into angular shapes and their legs arms fingers become skinny and eye sockets become deeper 
making the eyes almost disappear. And we've seen some of this uh, if you're on Twitter or uh, some headlines. Uh, we see a lot of that in Sirius, especially with uh, mm-hmm. as a result of the famine. But uh, the and part Yemen that too. yeah yeah sorry Yemen. Uh, but uh, uh, one of the things that uh, stuck out to me was many of our classmates experience this hunger and today it continues to afflict millions of Brazilians who die of its violence every year. And I think that's an important point that he raises that people starving to death is violence. Mm -hmm. So, so if if those people then react in a way that, you know, violently or a violent reaction to that hunger, that's not, they're not being aggressive that they're, they're defending themselves against the the violence of starvation and so like that that framing changes uh, the by articulating the violence of hunger i i think it shows that how policy and decision makers can be just as violent as uh, any gangster or street ruffian mm-hmm. and i think you're like you said you're the framing there is really important because you're talking not about what not just about what's experienced but also the way you should be allowed to respond to that sort of thing, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of people are constantly talking about a lot. Some people are constantly saying, you know, like, oh, you can't fire, fire with fire. You can't call the president a motherfucker or whatever, because like, how dare you step outside of the boundaries of what's considered, you know, civil discourse or civil responses. But I don't think that a response to oppression needs to be civil. You know, like, what is the point if 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 the response to oppression is just to to nod and accept what's happening, then it means that you either don't understand your oppression or you don't you're not as as motivated to fight for a freedom from that. You know, you've been brainwashed into accepting the position that you're in. And so I agree with you that that framing as of hunger and deprivation as a type of violence is like super important to understand and to think of structural harm as as physical harm as and as violence for sure Um, and i i was just going to say quickly that i also see a metaphor in that hunger for a a hunger that's not just literal and referring to nourishment or like physical nourishment but also a hunger for what he goes on to describe as you know to live to exist to be Mm -hmm. and and that uh that uh, uh that hunger is you know a, a suppressed by the uh, ruling class and in in the oppressed, and that it also I I see it in my own interpretation I see the physical effects of that oppression that that oppression and that mental or social hunger to exist in a real way and not exist in a survivalistic uh, you know day by day kind of way. Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely. I just wanted to switch gears a little bit um, mm-hmm. to start talking about some of the theories that Macedo introduces, speaking about Freire's work. So if you all go to page 14, something interesting that happens is, because I think this debate is ongoing, mm-hmm. um, certainly on Twitter, but definitely beyond Twitter, uh, this discussion about, is it race or class? <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> and you know, one of the things that I always like to do, instead of just saying it's both and like calling it a day, one of the things I like to do is point to texts or like things that thinkers that have come long before any of us were even alive were saying, and in particular thinking about their material conditions, like what kind of lives they lived and what they saw and how those lives and experience shaped what they have said. So one of the things to remember when we talk about Freire, for example, is that he grew up in a part of Brazil that is predominantly black and predominantly poor. Um, and as we said earlier, he was living at a time when, you know, he was, he was thinking about a childhood uh, at a time when, you know, they were going through major deprivation. 
And so for him, this idea of, you know, growing up in an area that is, is clearly a leftover space of where slavery was at its height in Brazil. Um, and only like, only had, they only had abolition, like, I don't know, 40 years before he's, he's growing up in Brazil. Um, so thinking about the ways that those kind of experiences shaped the way he understood race and class is really important. And one of the things that is pointed out here um, on page 14 by Macedo is that he says that he always appreciated the theoretical complexity of multi-factor analysis. So in this case, they're talking about, you know, oppression on the basis of race, class, gender, et cetera. Um, But that he never underestimated the role of class. For example, he resisted the essentialist approach of reducing all analysis to one monolithic entity of race. For instance, African functionaries who assimilate to colonial cultural values constitute a distinct class with very different ideological cultural values and aspirations than the bulk of the population. Likewise, it would be a mistake to view all African-Americans as one monolithic cultural group with marked differences. And then he goes on to talk about, like, for example, Clarence Thomas is black, (laughs) but he's also wealthy and conservative. And like he he thinks about the law in that way as someone who's rich and who has access and who has power. Right. So even though like me and Clarence Thomas are the same race, but the way we go (laughs) through the world is very different, you know, and I think it's always important to understand that there are all these these sort of, uh, I don't know, like there's, if you're looking at, if you're talking about like two different identities along the same line, there are going to be things that cross that they have sort of like cross sections. If you were to cut a line through and say, okay, this is where their experiences are very, very different. And the way they think about life is very, very different. But what this person Macedo goes on to say and explain about um, Freire's way of thinking is that it's not just about race being or not being a unifying force, but he also talks about that you have to be able to understand the way race operates through class. So he says, for example, um, quoting Freire, that one cannot reduce, this is on page 15, one cannot reduce the analysis of racism to social class. One cannot understand racism fully without a class analysis. For to do one at the expense of the other is to fall prey into a sectarianist position, which is as despicable as the racism that we need to uh, to reject. Then they goes they on excuse me. Then they go on to say, uh, Freire's later works continue to make it clear that an analysis of oppression through a convergent theoretical framework, where the object of oppression is cut across many factors such as race, class, gender, culture, language, and ethnicity. Thus, he would reject any theoretical analysis that would collapse the multiplicity of factors into a monolithic entity, including class. So basically to translate that, because it gets a little word salad <laughs> um, but basically what they're saying is like, you cannot understand oppression through only one lens. You have to understand how all these factors work together. And he says, even class, you can't just look at class alone to understand the way people are oppressed. And that's why, and then, you know, Macedo goes on to explain that that's why Freire himself tended to use this idea of understanding oppression as a lens through which to talk about, you know, where people are on this spectrum, as opposed to understanding it as just like everyone who's poor is equal and has the same experiences. Instead, we have to understand how oppression works, even among people who are poor and how that also has varying layers and how to address that and how those people can also, their oppression um, can be interactive in some ways, but at the same time, some people possess um, certain forms of power in which they can also exercise and oppress other groups of people, even if they're both from the same racial group or the both, both from the same economic position. 
mean, Clarence Thomas being a good example for the race thing and being yeah. to, <laughs> like literally being able to implement like things that will harm uh, people of his of his ethnic group, and that that's uh, that, and I mean that that's I think what he's trying to capture there. And I I've highlighted the same quotes because I thought I found them also interesting and and very important and ap- applicable to today. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think what becomes like uh, it to me it seems like an unassailable fact that you can't simply just reduce everything to class and then see and see things through that lens uh, what i do see is an argument uh somewhat separate from theory about the practical effectiveness of trying to reduce everything to class as a rhetorical and political technique in order to forward perhaps larger or, or more inclusive goals mm-hmm. like it's a strategy that i think theory argues against in a lot of ways that i've read so far anyway and that has its own weaknesses but it, it's a that i think is distinct from literally trying to reduce everything to class in, in analysis versus you know doing it as a rhetorical mechanism to appeal to a wider audience Right. That distinction isn't really made online, whether which one somebody may be arguing for until usually, you know, 10 comments later or something like that. <laughs> and I think that's why, too, it's so important that like throughout this introduction, Macedo reminds us that Freire himself was preoccupied not just with theory. Right. It's not about thinking about just the words, but also praxis. Also, how do we put these words into practice? How do we make theory come to life in in our everyday interactions with other people in our everyday fight against oppression? Um, and so I think that's that kind of lends itself to what you were saying as well, Richard. Mm-hmm. Like we can't just focus on what might work on paper, but then not think about how it applies and operates in real life. Um, and, you know, like not just what works well and what gets a bunch of clicks on Twitter, but then in real life doesn't necessarily appeal to the people that a lot of us aren't really listening to in some cases, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it's important to really try to step back and think about ways that language can fail us at some times, at, in some cases, and that you can't, you can't just have one without the other. Like you have to have, and they have to interact both theory and language and practice, you know? Yeah. I mean, in, uh, to, you know, paraphrase something, it's like praxis is worth a thousand words, you know? Like, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> it, it, it's like, uh, you can say a lot of things, but people can look at your actions and determine whether the, what you're saying is reflective of what, what you actually do. And I think that's one thing that I know myself and I'm sure lots of people can reflect on is that if you're living your theory, then people then then it becomes less questionable whether you know the theory you're advancing is functional or not because you're living it and so right. you're you're functioning with it so it's a matter of fact that it is but when you have a theory but you in practice act basically indistinguishable from the capitalists you critique then it becomes uh, more questionable whether the theory you're advancing this theory uh, in an esoteric you know kind of uh, academic sense or if you're advancing the theory from a practical sense. And so I think uh, mm-hmm. pra- the practice in uh, it to uh, go to the text, page 19 uh, says, you know, uh, we must not negate practice for the sake of theory. To do so would reduce theory to pure verbalism or intellectualism. And it's like, but also by the same token, it says uh, to negate theory for the sake of practice, as in the use of dialogue as conversation is to run the risk of losing oneself and the disconnectedness of the practice. And so like, uh, 
and then the, I guess the final sentence, it is for this reason that I never advocate either a theoretical elitism or a practice ungrounded in theory, but the unity between theory and practice. And I mm -hmm. see that connection similar to our previous connections between class and race and other lenses is that they're uh, inseparable. If you separate them, they lose their functionality to get closer to a truth. Uh, and so we have to keep them together, both theory and practice. Otherwise, uh, when we go too far into one, it, it loses its connected uh, connectiveness to the other. And not only connectiveness, but it like no longer has meaning to be yes. honest, right? Like at all, actually. Right. Um, and one of the things too, that just really quickly on page 22 that I think kind of gets us into that as well, like it, things losing meaning um, because we're kind of, we're not putting them into practice or we're not thinking about how these two um, aspects interact. Um, he says on page 22, uh, he well, he talks about on page 21 and 22, how sometimes the focus on language and theory in academia gets us into a place where we're defending really horrific things like war, just because we, we're looking for more precise language or we're overlooking things that are happening in war because we're looking for more precise language. So he mentions the Gulf War, um, but one of the things that he says on page 22, um, because he talks about the use of the term collateral damage or terms like smart bombs mm -hmm. as they talk about murdering people in Iraq. Um, and he says, I can go on with examples to point out how academics who argue for clarity of language not only seldom object to language that obfuscates reality, but often use the same language as part of the general acceptance that the, quote, standard discourse is given and should remain unproblematic. So, like, when I was reading this, I kept thinking about, again, this, on like, the the growth again, once again, of fascism and how you see people who are arguing like, oh, but is fascism the right word? I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't call it that. Maybe we should call it something else. I saw, um, despite the fact, for example, Bolsonaro and Brazil fitting, like if you could literally have a yeah. checklist of like what fascism is and he, like he fits every box except like he doesn't wear a uniform or something, you know, like yeah, that's the like, extent of it. I, I, my experience, <laughs> like I had learned a little bit about Bolsonaro through, uh, through Wendy, through you and through uh the research that you had helped uh that you put on your timeline and stuff but i did some more independent research i'm just i was a bit flabbergasted at just how openly fascist he is yeah and people are sitting there arguing like is fascism the right term should we use that i heard someone who referred to it as neoliberal authoritarianism and i'm like that shit softens what he's doing if it takes me 20 mm -hmm. minutes to get out the word to refer to what he's doing then you're doing it wrong. Like this shit needs to be boiled down to very simple, plain language. It is fascism. That's he's like textbook. That's what it is. Call it what it is. Stop dancing around like technicalities at this point because those literally said he was going to kick us. out. Is literally said they were, he was going to kick out or imprison his political opposition. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and among so many other things, right? Like it's it, not, and it's not just like what he says, but it's also what he's already doing while in office, and like who's backing him and who makes up his cabinet and fill in the blank. So, like my point, not to dwell on this, but my point yeah. is just the idea that like we get, I think some people get so bogged down with the right words as opposed to fighting the fight. Like we're going to sit here and we're going to focus on words as opposed to like people who have these silly arguments and i'm like what are you doing though to to stave off fascism in the united states what are you do like how are you fighting just beyond this 
like crap online? What are you doing to educate people? What are you doing to help people in your community? What are you doing to like educate people in your own family who may have voted for a fascist candidate for office? We have to think about ways that we can go beyond just this needs to be the right word. And like, yeah. how can, how can academics like, and I mean, it's interesting because this past week I was at a conference in Chicago for historians, like American historical association conference. And there was a, there was a meeting or there was a session, a panel about how academics um, can like think about Trump and how we can educate in, in the quote unquote age of Trump. It was interesting to get a lot of their answers, but like one of the things that Barbara Ransby said, who was a presenter there and who's like an amazing academic and activist, she said, you know, like ultimately we can't just sit there writing op-eds for the New York Times. Like we have to be in the streets. We have to be supporting the communities that need us. We have to be going beyond the quote unquote ivory tower and really supporting people and like, you know, like understanding what's going on. Because if you're just writing for the New York Times, as valid as that is, as one form of expression, it has to go beyond that because you're right. You're, you're preaching to the choir, right? Like you're talking to the people who already think Trump is bad and so we have to go beyond just like what makes us feel comfortable and these like little weird discussions about, you know, like semantics and talk about real material change. So, and what yeah, that looks like. I, I actually uh, just uh, had a great conversation with, uh, I guess going by Chad Vigorous, uh, pretty at pretty bad lefty. We on the discourse, uh, I think it should be out before too long. It may be uh, only available to patrons, but I'm probably going to try and talk them out of that and <laughs> get it so yes, that everybody <laughs> get, get it so that everybody can listen to it. Maybe you know give patrons early access or something. But uh, we did talk about that exactly what you're talking about and the obsession among primarily like a neoliberal but centrist in general. Uh, group of being technically correct mm -hmm. and, and an obsession over being technically correct even if that means being uh you know wrong in reality of how things actually pl uh, play out and so uh it, we go on at length about it and uh, i think it also crosses into something that we'll probably cover uh, a little bit in this one and also in the next part as far as uh how ideology can be a blinder and uh Macedo actually mentions it in the intro uh about the language and that comes to this part actually of where he describes the different types of you know euphemisms that we accept and don't consider obfuscation or you know uh you know gobbledygook type uh language or i'm sorry i don't know if that's offensive but uh, uh <laughs> i don't think so i don't think but yeah we'll find we'll learn i guess we'll find out yeah uh but yeah you know like uh, or word salad or whatever you know it's like they the academics who are supposed to be well educated and able to interpret this stuff part of the reasons why they say oh these, this doesn't make any sense is because of ideological blinders that you know when he uses certain words uh, they they don't have a framework to accept or to uh, conceptualize them, and so it becomes incoherent. When really, uh, it's quite coherent. And uh, I know you you came across the same part I did, where he kind of covered that. You mentioned before, or when we were talking beforehand about uh, the part where he references the giving the text to a young African American, uh, uh, or yeah, give it to, I think it was a, a woman, and then she gave it to her son. Mm -hmm. the, basically, the way the, that Macedo talks about it is like, Freire had given 
a few copies of the first few chapters of the book, I believe, to a woman, an African-American woman who, when he, I think when he was like teaching at Harvard, he was a guest, guest professor mm-hmm. during exile or something. Um, and he had given some early copies just for someone to look over. And he decided to give it to a woman who they quoted as, or they, they called like semi-literate, not formally educated, to read through them and just tell him what he, what she thought. And so she read through them, but not only did she do that, but she gave the copies to her 16-year-old son and who also read it. And he literally said, like, I really want to meet this man who wrote, whoever wrote this, I want to meet him. Um, and so, you know, Freire reflects on it and he says, like, both of these people understood it and understood what I was saying and, like, d- deeply connected with the language and what I was talking about in Pedagogy of the Oppressor, like these early, early drafts, you know, um, whereas some academics were like missing the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. And so it's just kind of interesting that there's, there's that disconnect, but like ultimately someone who's lived this and experienced it can fully, un- can understand it better and not, doesn't, doesn't get bogged down by the language and instead focuses on the primary points that he goes yeah. to. I think uh, it's one of the ways that I learned, uh, you know, I expanded my vocabulary was through context clues. You know, it was one of the first things that I learned. It's like if you read a word and you don't know what the word means, you don't have a dictionary handy. This is before Google. For those of you who may not remember that that was a world, uh, <laughs> you had to just figure stuff out. And so We're old school around here. <laughs> right. And Geriatric so, like, at this point. <laughs> right. And so, like, sometimes you come across words you didn't understand. And it's like, I think uh the because the the material conditions are so overwhelming of any sort of loose theoretical base of understanding for a lot of people particularly among the semi-literate crowd or non-traditionally educated uh like because the theoretical framework is very loose and mostly you know based off of hegemonic uh ideas that are placed on them rather than that they come to at through a realizations of their own uh they it's easier to to use the context it's like oh i get what he's talking about there when he says oppressors what he means is those guys over there <laughs> like mm-hmm. and because they can point to them in their lives they can see them like <laughs> but it's like when uh some when the academics read it they're like oh you know it's like my boss isn't really an oppressor he's just kind of a jerk and you know he's got a boss and like they they don't make they don't have the same kind of connection and so like uh when uh, Macedo points out that it's important that the title of the book in Pedagogy of the Oppressed, by using the term oppressed, it 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 names an oppressor mm-hmm. versus uh, if they would have called used a more uh, neoliberal term like uh, the disenfranchised, because any he, he says you know what's the opposite or the opposing of the disenfranchised? It's not necessary. We don't have a disenfranchiser. So I think the language and like, and we've heard this in previous texts that we've read uh, about the importance of language and the choices of words that we make. And so that uh, Sato basically suggests that it's a conscious choice to use the oppressed rather than something that may have been more palatable for a a neoliberal audience. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it kind of, it obfuscates what he's really saying, right? Like he kind Mm -hmm. of dances around or could have multiple meanings Whereas mm-hmm. oppressed is like very straightforward. <laughs> right. And essential. part of what makes people so uncomfortable with engaging with it. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so then did you have anything else that you wanted to go over from Macedo's intro before we go on to intro number two? <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. And, and I mean, okay. it, it, it covers, that's kind of a teaser for both some of the things we're going to cover in this part, part one, and then some of the things that are going to be safe for part two. So. Awesome. Um, so the next part is the preface. I know it's center, it's like weird. We have intro number two, but like these intros are really good. Y'all please read them. Mm -hmm. Um, but the next part is by someone by the name of Richard Shaw. I'm, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing his name. Um, but he he gives more of an overview of like Freire the person. So he talks more about his background. He talks about the process that Pedagogy of the Oppressed went through to like get in English, to be, to be published in English at all um, and to be introduced to the United States. Because one of the things that Shaw says is like, you know, people read this in Latin America and it makes sense, but the idea of applying it beyond the quote unquote third world, there were questions about whether or not people would identify with it. Um, and ultimately, you know, they can. <laughs> um, and he was surprised that there hadn't been people who had like picked it up before and thought about publishing it. Um, and so it's something that he kind of gives a little background on. Um, but I think one of the things that stood out to me beyond just the fact that he notes, he talks a lot about um, how education for people like Freire and for people like him is like a subversive tool, right? It's not just uh, something that you do, but it's something that can actually be liberatory. One of the things that stood out to me um, for this was his discussion about the cultural, the culture of silence and how um, this is one of the ways that we could potentially connect to Freire's ideas, even if we ourselves are not necessarily growing up as a literate poor people in rural parts of Latin American countries, um, like many of the people that Freire himself worked with and, and educated. Um, and so he says at one point on page 33 that one of the ways we can connect is, quote, our advanced technological society is rapidly making objects of most of us and subtly programming us into conformity to the logic of its system. To the degree that this happens, we are also becoming submerged in a new quote unquote culture of silence. And like what he means by this idea of the culture of silence is just that we're sort of brainwashed and, and pushed into not articulating what, what our oppression is, not seeing it, not expressing it and not working to challenge it um, because, you know, we're just so conditioned to it. We say, OK, I'm, this is what it is. This is how it goes. And we should be afraid to challenge it. And so I think in some ways, you know, he's absolutely right when he says that we're also in the present conditioned to that kind of silencing because of of the way our labor systems work now. You know, everything is super alienated and super disconnected, you know, like we can order stuff without talking to a human being, you know, mm -hmm. we don't know what happens in that factory when the person has, when a, an actual human being might have to go package the box that comes to me. It's all totally disconnected. And, and it so, shows up at your door and the person that dropped it off is gone before you get it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so like <laughs> like we, it is really disconnected. I hadn't really thought about that. Right. Maybe. It's totally disconnected. And we also get to the point where like, we don't necessarily fully understand uh, the way we are, too, we are also oppressed by the system or the way other people are oppressed by the system because we don't see the oppression in the same way. And obviously, even people who are on the oppressed side, there's so many, I think, sometimes comforts or like technological differences or uh, forms of entertainment, things to distract us that we don't, we kind of are silenced into um, not complaining, you know, like, be happy you live here, be happy you have, you at least have Twitter, you have Amazon, you have a TV, you have this, you have that. Like, why are you complaining? You know, just be happy. Shut up. Like it. Yeah. <laughs> like it. <laughs> <laughs> like it. <laughs> 
um, the whip of of advance you know technological advancements so i don't know it's very Mm -hmm. black mirror to say that which black mirror has its own problems of fatalism which we can talk Mm -hmm. about in a minute but um yeah but still I mean, I think that kind of uh, that, that picks into kind of one of the points that I saw comes on page about 38 mm. uh, and goes into 39 uh, about where lines up the rightist sectarian differs from his or her leftist counterpart in that the former attempts to domesticate the present so that he or she hopes the future will reproduce this domesticated present, while the latter considers the future pre-established a kind of inevitable fate fortune or destiny okay so break that down a minute because i feel like when he was saying that i was like i I was trying to chart it in my head like the past and the present and the future and the can you break that down a little bit what does he mean in this yes i i also had to read it a few times to really kind of feel like i grasped it (laughs) uh what i get from it is that uh saying that the right is trying to domesticate and dominate uh the present in order to reproduce both the present and uh, a form of the past into the mm. future. It says that if we don't, you know, dominate people and keep them in strict order and control, then they will uh, propagate out of control and we'll lose all of the things we currently hold dear. And it's like, and then it says the leftist uh, instead kind of takes that the long arc of justice bends or the long moral arc bends towards justice and just presumes that to happen without any active engagement in the mm. process. And so the, like he's basically saying that they're both uh, uh, not really engaging with the realities. It's like the, the rightist is trying to hold on to something that doesn't necessarily uh, have value. And then the leftist is presuming that this value will just come out of the chaos. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, it take, our society is socially constructed. So the right is right in that the best way to reproduce the society that they've come accustomed to is to dominate and, and prevent people from growing beyond that society. Uh, but that's not productive. And then the left is, you know, wrong in that the, the moral arc is going to bend towards justice on its own. It takes active and constant vigilance and engagement in the process in order to bend society uh, towards that more moral and justice filled future. And that part is actually, so Richard, just let everybody know, Richard just skipped into the third intro, which is Freire's himself, like his, his intro. Oh yeah. Sorry. sorry about um, that. No, it's okay. Just to get to locate people. So, um, so that one you said is it's on page 39, 40, right around there. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, I really, it's like the whole time I was reading that part and especially the way you just broke it down, it made me think a lot about like, uh, make America great again. So there's mm-hmm. this, this focus on a past, but it's like a fictive past that didn't exist and that isn't going to exist and like never was really true anyway, but like great for whom and like just all these layers of time operating in a phrase like that. Um, and then at the same time, like you said, the response by some people who are saying that things are going to change and get better, but they're not willing to necessarily pick up the mantle and do it themselves and like, get it going, you know, like it's just going to mm-hmm. happen. It's like automatically going to happen. Um, and I think we can just, we can just sit back and like retweet something and everything's going to be fine um, and not actually get out and, you know, necessarily put our, put our money where our mouth is. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, I think it can like definitely be applicable to what we're seeing happen right now and not, not just here, but in a lot of places where, the right is in 
governmental control and the left is trying to think of, or not just even left, but centrists are everybody <laughs> is trying to think of a, a response that will work against this kind of distortion of history and distortion of time that we're all still trying to live within, you know? Um, uh, and our so educational system has left us, uh, you know, critically incapable of that type of analysis. And yes. like, that that's we're seeing the the effects is based you know we spent 30 40 50 years creating a society that was prepared to go to work in a factory without the critical thinking skills to be able to you know uh to think about the things beyond the uh the whatever the work line and then they figured it then donald trump became better at manipulating that system than they were <laughs> And it was like, so it was like, that that's what happened is like, you guys just got played. You, you, you made a, a population that was capable of being manipulated and then got bad at manipulating them. Uh, yes. <laughs> Ultimately. Yes. Yeah. I want to just link something you just said about people not being prepared to fight and like not kind of the mm -hmm. way we're educated to it's, it's sort of like to train us into not thinking about these things. I think something that both the, the second introduction by Richard Shaw and then the, the the third the third introduction by Frey the, the actual original introduction by Freire that links them together and that connects back to what you said that I wanted to touch on so if you go to page 34 Shaw says at the end there's no such thing as a neutral education process education either functions as an instrument that is used to facilitate the integration of the younger generation into the logic of the present system and bring about conformity to it or it becomes, quote, the practice of freedom, which is to use Freire's words, which means, or the means by which men and women deal critically and creatively with reality and discover how to participate in the transformation of their world. And then as you go on, Freire himself introduces this idea of um, conscientização, which is basically like conscience, conscience making um, or the creation of consciousness. And he also translates it as sort of like a critical consciousness. That's another a phrase that he uses throughout the book. Um, so this this is what needs to be our response to this education and socialization that sort of makes us numb and not think about the prospect of freedom. And so I, I think just to introduce that term is really important because he uses mm -hmm. it throughout the book. Um, but it's also at this point where I think he kind of starts to bridge what you were talking about and also what the the last author of the second introduction uh, started to introduce for us um, that becomes important as we continue to read. And that concludes part one of our discussion of Pedagogy of the Oppressed. We'll continue with part two and part three for the subsequent podcast. But thank you for listening thus far to our discussion of the introduction. Uh, in the meantime, if you'd like to check out old episodes of Love POC, donate, learn more about the podcast, learn more about the project, you can go visit us on Twitter and that's at Left POC, L-E-F-T-P-O-C. You can also donate and join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash left POC. And as I mentioned before, all of our content is free. However, if you'd like to donate for us to keep the show running, to help aid our assistants who are amazing and do great work, um, feel free to donate there a dollar or more. 
Also, um, for those of you who are interested, I have additional information about the Paulo Freire Institute in Sao Paulo, which I've actually visited and done research at. Um, so if you'd like to get more information about how to donate to them and their work in regard to educating the poor in Brazil, please feel free to be in touch. Um, you can send a direct message to LeftPOC at Twitter, um, and you can also reach us on Facebook, and I'll respond to your questions there. Um, so again, thank you all so much for listening, and I look forward to the next few episodes. Please come back soon. Have a good one.